Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter, and today I'm coming to you with a solo episode. This episode is going to be a bit of a reflection, actually, on a previous guest interview. I recently released an episode with Alexander Sorokin, and I wanted to talk to him about a variety of different things, um, one of which was his most recent 24-hour world record, where he ran 198.6 miles in 24 hours, which comes out to a 7-minute, 15-second per mile pace. Uh, A few things stood out to me about that record that made it a really interesting conversation. Um, One was just, I mean, the absurdity of that amount of miles in 24 hours, uh, obviously, Uh, His training was something that really stood out to me too, this prep leading into it. I wanted to hear about kind of maybe a little bit about the hows and whys with that. Uh, And I also just wanted to cover his background because he's got a really interesting backstory. This this wasn't his first world record. This is the first of many. So trying to understand what kind of all came together for this particular one and potentially how some of the previous ones played into that. Uh, One thing I've talked about a bit on other podcasts and this one as well is just this idea that it gets, it's really fun to really do a deep dive and look into like, well, what did this person do when they were peaking for this race they ran? Like what was their like eight week bill leading into their taper look like? And there's some cool, valuable stuff you can learn from those type of things. But ultimately, if you just look at that, you're missing a huge component of what likely got them to the finish line at the time or distance in which they did that. And that's just the totality of their training, not just with the entire training block, but the previous training blocks as well, especially when the person is is uninjured throughout. And one thing that also kind of stands out with these last couple of years of Sorokin's world record successes is he has remained basically injury free. As far as I can tell, there was one little spot in uh, the training when I looked into that looked like maybe he had a small little thing that flared up on him or something like that, but it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of any setbacks from that standpoint. So post-race, you know, he would, he would take some downtime, but then when you get back on the horse, he was back on the horse and, and very effective in kind of transitioning back into full structured training. So when I talked to to him after the world record, there was a pretty wide range of things I wanted to talk about. So that probably limited how deep we could go on to any one topic. And there's also a language barrier to some degree. Uh, Alexander's learned to speak English uh, much better than when he first broke it, when he broke his first world record. So these interviews are a little more doable without a translator now. And um, we were able to cover some stuff and I thought he did a fantastic job, all things considered. But with that said, the hard part about that interview is I sent him some questions up front that were like kind of in line with the topics that I wanted to cover. And he answered those very well. And the hard part is following up. So if he has an answer and I want to follow up with something, it makes it a little difficult because I have to try to put it in words on the spot for him to be able to digest, understand, and then properly answer. So I wanted to avoid putting him in a ton of those situations if possible uh, just because it would have likely not made a very good interview, uh, if I was just kind of confusing him with like a lot, a lot of follow-up questions and, and, and rather than doing that, I thought we'd cover what we could. And then 
what I've decided to do is after now that that interview has been out for about a week, I've been getting a lot of interesting questions and comments from the people who listen to it, as well as some that I have. So what I ended up doing is since Sorokin has been very generous with his training information, meaning that as far as I can tell, everything he does is publicly available on Strava. So what I thought I would do in order to get maybe a little bit of a better understanding of what got him to the 198.6 and what will potentially get him much past that, as I think if you recall in the previous interview, he estimated that he thinks in ideal situations with another go of it, maybe a little better pacing. He's looking at numbers well past 200, like 208 even. 210, I think he said, was maybe something that he'd, he'd keep in mind as he's preparing for the next 24-hour event that he does. So I went into his Strava profile. I went all the way back to early 2021 in April when he broke his first world record, which was the 100-mile in 12-hour, and looked at the training leading into that. And then I kind of just followed along with the time between those and highlighted kind of his peaking phase for each of the subsequent world records he did at 24 hours, then 100 kilometers and six hours, and then again, 24 hours. So we're going to go through those numbers so you can get an idea of the trajectory, like where things maybe changed or how he altered things along the way, some adjustments he perhaps made based on, you know, whether it was say a hundred K world record attempt or a 24 hour, which is a pretty big stretch. When you think about it, you know, once we get into ultra marathoning, it all becomes a little bit lower intensity relative to Olympic distance races. But, you know, we're still talking about like his, his hundred kilometer world record, which was an average of five minutes and 52 seconds per mile versus his 24 hour world record, which comes out to seven minutes and 15 seconds per mile. So there's still a pretty big gap in pacing there between those two things. So I did want to kind of get a little bit more of a deep look at what he maybe did differently within those. If there's a theme or a philosophy kind of embedded in all of that, that goes above and beyond what we talked about in the podcast interview I did with him. Um, there's a couple other questions too, that kind of came up. Uh, one that is sort of always on the topic when someone runs a fast race or a personal best or a world record or something like this. And it's the super shoe stuff. So, you know, our sport has now had super shoe technology available to some since 2016. And now today, most major shoe brands have a version of that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about just super shoe technology in general and what maybe we can expect that would do for someone like Sorokin. And ultimately, though, I'd like to have Dr. Jeff Burns come back on the show at some point and talk about that, as well as just training methodology here. Because if I had to think of one thing that surprises me the most about everything that Alexander's done so far, it, the, the records the records are obviously impressive. I can wrap my head around some of that stuff. Some of the training, though, especially this most recent block, is like just really, really like massive from what I can tell. And I want to hear about some, some other groups or people that have done some similar, similar approaches to endurance training and find out if there's any themes within that in terms of like longevity in the sport, short-term success versus long-term success. And kind of like, where are the, where are these physical limitations that, you know, an endurance sport that has an impact like running versus cycling, skiing, swimming, and things like that. 
you know, wh where are these lines and what, and, and what can we maybe expect from what we've seen in the past? And I know Dr. Jeff Burns has a lot of information as he's followed a lot of different training groups and methodologies over the years that sometimes branch outside of what we typically see in our standard literature for endurance training and things like that. So uh, possibly down the road, we'll have something like that kind of coming up to maybe dive a little bit deeper yet into some of the questions and things that I think came in after my episode with, uh, with, uh, Alexander Sorokin, uh, a few things before we get rolling into the specifics of this episode, if, uh, you want to access the audio version of this show ad free and early release, you can do that by accessing the show's Patreon page. You can click onto the show's Patreon page by simply heading to the show landing page, which is just zackbetter.com forward slash HPO. From there, there are links to each individual episode, as well as the details and links and discounts and things that come with each of those episodes, as well as a link that'll take you to the show Patreon page, which, like I said, will give you access to the ad-free audio, as well as early release options and a way to support the, support the podcast. Um, other things also on that show landing page, you can do one-time contributions if you wish to do that. If you really want to support the show, though, and uh, you want to lean into the non-monetary way of doing that, what goes the longest way usually is just liking, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast. If I grow the show, it allows me to create more episodes and ultimately keep moving things in the right direction with this. So if you want to help out and you like an episode, feel free to share it on social media, like, subscribe to your favorite podcast listening platform. And let your friends and family know what you found valuable from it. So I think everyone who's been doing that and in advance, everyone who will do that going forward. Uh, finally, if you're gearing up for an event or a race and you'd like a little extra support, I do have some coaching options also at ZachBitter.com. Those coaching options range from pre-made plans that follow my philosophy from a variety of distances. I've got five kilometers up to hundred miles. I got a strength athlete's guide to endurance on there. I've got a base building guide on there. They're all tiered on three different levels. And uh, many of them also have different timeframes or timelines between like 16 weeks and 24 week options. If you want a little more support than just following my philosophy and guidance through those pre-made static plans, uh, you can work with me one-on-one -on -one as well. These come in a variety of options, including uh, me writing the plan for you based on your lifestyle, your schedule, your goal race, your current fitness, your previous training. And then you can tier that all the way up to a lot of support, whether it be email, text message, and frequent phone or video consultations. So you can access all of that stuff if you're interested at zachbitter.com as well. Finally, before we get rolling, uh, another way to support the show is if one of the show sponsors happens to have a product that you would find useful for your lifestyle, you can let them know that you found out about them through the links that are provided in the show notes and as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. So this episode's sponsors include LMNT's Electrolytes and Bond Charge. Bond Charge is a holistic wellness brand with a range of products that help you navigate the modern environment in a better way. They focus on things like circadian rhythm and optimal sleep routines. I've been using two of their products this summer. These include their 100% blackout sleep masks and their blue light blocking glasses. Good sleep hygiene like a cool temperature environment, pitch black darkness, and a quiet environment can go a long way to help you stay asleep and maximize your nighttime rest. So personally, I like a consistent routine I can replicate whether I am at home or traveling. 
being able to replicate my routine as close as possible makes it easier to consistently get a good night's sleep regardless of whether I am home or traveling. I use the Bond Charge sleep mask to make sure I have the same 100% blackout regardless if I am at home or traveling. The material on the Bond Charge sleep mask is comfortable, adjustable, and allows me to sleep on my back or sides without discomfort. The soft padded eye cups allow you to open your eyes while wearing the mask. I also spend a lot of time every day staring at computer screens, phones, and tablets while recording, editing podcasts, answering emails, and writing my coaching plans. I use the Bond Charge blue light blocking glasses while trying to stay an arm's width away from the screen when possible and refocusing my eyesight every 20 minutes. This helps minimize discomfort from blue light and glare from staring at screens all day. If you want to check out either of these products and the rest of the things that Bond Charge has on their website, you can go to bondcharge.com forward slash HPO and use coupon code HPO to save 20% off your order. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E dot com forward slash HPO and use coupon code HPO to save 20% off your order. Bond Charge ships worldwide in rapid time and has easy return and exchanges if you are not satisfied. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, going to the gym, or while traveling. My go-tos are the citrus flavor and the newly restocked watermelon flavor for my long runs and post-run rehydration, as well as their chocolate flavor, which I love to add in my morning coffee with a little bit of creamer. Tastes great, and it's a fun way to start the day for me. If you are hesitant or would like to try out Element first, before you purchase, they are offering a flavor sample pack with one of each of their flavors for free to anyone who uses the HPO URL. If you want to check them out and support HPO along the way, you can head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drink lmnt.com forward slash HPO. Links can be found in the show notes as well as at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. So the way I'm going to kind of break this down is I find it really interesting to look at kind of historical data, at least to some degree, what, what's available anyway, uh, to get a better look at kind of how a person arrived. Because when we look at Sorokin's final eight-week build into his 24-hour world record, most recent one, it can be very difficult to wrap your head around. I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around just the level of quality and volume that he was able to put together in that buildup. And really, since that was kind of what I would consider the biggest surprise I had when kind of talking to him and looking through kind of both his race results, his preparation, things like that, I just wanted to get a little bit of a closer look into kind of how he got there because you just don't show up doing 200 plus mile weeks with quality uh without some some ramp up there so i wanted to get a better grasp of what maybe that looked like uh he did share with us a lot of his background in terms of not being kind of a runner traditionally uh he was a professional kayaker for a little bit and then kind of stepped away from sport in general for a while, got out of shape, gained some weight, picked up some drinking and smoking habits that he wanted to get 
get rid of, so to speak, and use running as kind of like the catapult for that. Um, but with that said, like, I mean, he's had a lot of great results in the last couple of years. So a lot of people, I think, see that as just, you know, he just burst onto the scene out of nowhere. When in reality, like you can get back a little further into his running career, which more or less started around 2013. He did have some success with that. He started out modestly for sure, but he ha- he had a top 10 finish in the 2015 World 100K Championships. He won the 24-hour World Championships. I believe that was in 2019. Uh, and then he won the Spartathlon. Now, his time at the Spartathlon was nowhere near Giannis Kyros's course record there, but nobody's is. Giannis has the top finishing times there. I think if... Uh, Sorokin would decide to go to Spartathlon, which he did say was something that was kind of on his long-term to-do list. Uh, I think we see him come much closer to that course record that Giannis has versus, you know, the two, almost three hours slower that he produced on his winning year. Um, But like I said, like that's common. Most winning years are going to be a couple hours plus beyond uh, when, when Kuros finished it. So uh, that'll be interesting to see as kind of a side note. But really what I wanted to do here is since there's a lot of talk about kind of his training as a buildup for this most recent world record, I've talked about this on other podcasts and I've shared it on this one as well. It's really cool to look at those kind of peaking phases for a big race, whether it's a personal best, a world record or any breakthrough race really. Uh, But it also doesn't tell the whole picture because these things compound on one another, especially when you get someone like Sorokin who has been very injury resistant. He had maybe one hiccup that was injury related. It was even hard to tell if that was truly what it was. And I'll get into the context of that when we go through that particular phase of his training, but yeah, he's been pretty smooth. He takes a little bit of downtime after the race and then kind of builds back into it. And each time it seems like he just adds a little more. And he did allude to that on the podcast when I asked him that question was just, yeah, you know, I'm just kind of upping the ante a little bit each time. And then that's kind of just how I arrived to where I did. And we're going to just take a much deeper look at that progression over the last couple of years with this particular episode. All right. So the way I ended up doing this is I took each of his major races dating back to April of 2021 with that first 100-mile, 12-hour world record at the Centurion Track Invitational in London and went through what I have as, I believe, like 12 or so weeks kind of leading into that. And then I kind of followed that theme with each of his his subsequent world records where we'll look at anywhere between about 8 to 12 weeks of his lead-in into that race particularly. And then we can see kind of where things changed, where things evolved, how he progressed, and and maybe answer some questions that were harder to answer uh, with uh, Alexander Sorokin when I had him on the show. And, and these are all questions that I kind of had in the back of my mind going into that episode. The unique thing about it is uh, Sorokin has just recently began to learn English to the degree where he can do kind of a standalone interview without a translator. So I did have the interview questions sent to him ahead of time, and he did a fantastic job answering them. What was difficult was if he had an answer that was interesting that I wanted to dive a little deeper on, it was sort of hard to throw him on, throw him on kind of out there with uh, without any warning, with a follow-up question that may be difficult for him to really tease out. So I wanted to kind of go through some of the stuff that I was curious about in a little more detail, hence this reflection uh, that we're going to do right now. Okay, so that first that first world record buildup, 
this was his 11 hour, 14 minute, and I think 57 second, 100 mile time, and then just over 105 miles for 12 hours. That week had a peak training week of 164.21 miles. And that week also included two rides and strength work. So one theme you're going to see throughout his builds, all of them, is strength work is included literally every week I looked at, regardless if it was this one, any of those middle ones, or this final 24, he always had strength work. He didn't mention that was something that he did uh, regularly when I interviewed him. He said it was a lot of kind of mobility, body work type stuff, lightweight stuff. That's how it appeared on Strava as well. Seemed like there was maybe some dumbbells, some lightweights, uh, but also just a lot of body work type stuff or body weight related stuff. So, you know, maybe that helps with some of the balances and things that could potentially lead to injury and helps him stay injury free. It's really hard to tell for sure, but it was something that was consistent throughout. Uh, we start out with uh, a 102 mile week that included one ski session. So one thing that was kind of interesting is when he's home, you know, he's got the four season climate in Lithuania. So in the winter months, you see a little bit of skiing, uh, in some cases, some treadmill work. And then when he goes to his training camp in Africa, we see a lot less cross training and a lot more just pure training. And part of that's just because when he would go over to Africa, that's typically like his build up, his final peaking phase for the most part. And, you know, that's just going to probably have more focus on like the running side of things and leaving, you know, as much gas in the tank as he can, uh, for, for those running related activities. But there were a few weeks, I believe three prior to that first 102 mile week that were very similar to this one. So I didn't dive into them in any more detail because they're sort of, uh, pretty indicative there. He, he began to begin to stay pretty much at that kind of low hundred mile range for the majority of this buildup. He did a, a second 102 mile week with two ski sessions, a 96 mile week with two ski sessions, 104 mile week with no, no, no ski or bike or swim, uh, 108 with one ride, 111, 120 with one ride, a 96 with a few short strides, I believe three, and then a 78 mile week followed by 159.8 mile week. And all of those had, um, all of those had one characteristic that kind of stayed there that we start to see maybe phase out by his final one was he had some more deload weeks, as you kind of see, he had a little, he had some consistency earlier on. And then he did, you could tell he kind of dropped back a little bit. Part of that might be his peak long run stood out on this one, a little bit less so compared to his most recent 24 hour, where he uh, starts stretching that long run out fair bit past 50 kilometers in some cases. But for this particular build compared to his next couple, you'll notice he did, he did that 50 mile. It was a, it was like essentially, I think five hours and 55 minute long run. And that was one that really stood out comparatively. It also was followed by some of those lower miles weeks um, that we listed. So uh, who knows, maybe you need a little extra recovery from that. For someone who is just sort of to kind of get into like training full time, that might have been like a little bit of an overreach in terms of what was going to kind of uh, provide him quality training in the next few days or weeks afterwards. Because uh, that's just a theme I did not see a lot of later on the plan where he would do a workout that was big enough to kind of pull him back from his 
his consistency in training or his foundational runs, or as we'll see, as we go through some of the speed work sessions, which begin to show up more frequently as we get through this. So who knows, maybe it was just a little bit of fatigue from that. Maybe it was, he picked up a little bit of an injury or something like that, that kept him a little bit more sidelined. Uh, he did a lot more, uh, kind of riding that week. So the week after that one, so that kind of stood out, but some kind of key observations with, uh, with this, those priority sessions or those foundational runs that I'm going to refer to, they looked like they were kind of ranging between the mid sixes to the low sevens for the most part throughout that particular, uh, that particular build, which stays consistent with kind of what he was peaking for. I mean, he ended up running an average of about six minutes and 45 seconds per mile for that particular race. Uh, and, you know, so his foundational sessions were kind of right at that race specific intensity. This one had no real speed work that I could tease out. There may have been some stuff that was embedded into runs that weren't clear that there was speed work in there. Uh, he did start to kind of report in the descriptions and in the titles and labels and things like that later on with more detail on speed work related stuff. So if someone wants to comb through each individual workout in a little more detail, you may be able to find some kind of hidden speed work in there, but it looked like it was just a lot more like base building a lot more kind of those foundational sessions. Um, like I said, strength work was consistent every more cross training, like biking and skiing in this one than maybe some of the other builds. Uh, which is an interesting thing to think about because when I did ask him about just the freakishly high volume that he was able to put together in some of his most recent buildups, he said that he was trying to mimic a lot of his training off of what we would see in a lot of like professional skiing and things like that, where these people are putting in sometimes like 30 plus hour training weeks. And I find that interesting because I think, yeah, you can handle that from like just an endurance training standpoint, that level of volume isn't uncommon with sports like Ironman triathlon and uh, ski skiing and things like that, where you have a lot more lower impact swimming is another example, a lot lower impact endurance running oftentimes has a limiter because of the impact. So, you know, perhaps he kind of had that in mind early on here and realized he was going to need to you know, just put in a little more cross training to get his volume where he thought he could tolerate it without kind of the impact. And then as he's kind of developed within the sport over the last couple of years, has been able to shift more of that training load towards the higher impact version of running. Um, so that was that first one. I think it makes, it makes sense. It definitely was his lightest build relative to his other ones. And it was also his least impressive world record of them all. If we just look at it from you know, a standpoint of kind of like where it stands amongst other people who have run, you know, similar races and things like that. And just how stout each of these records tended to be, be viewed as throughout the ultra running community. All right. So that next world record he did was the first time he broke the 24 hour world record. So this one was, he went up in distance as one would maybe expect. He had, he broke the world records for hundred mile, 12 hours. So now he's like, okay, let's, let's see what, see about the 24 hour one. One that kind of stands out to people with this one is prior was Giannis Kiros who had run, you know, just under 189 miles for 24 hours. Uh, Sorokin ended up going about 192 and a half for this one. So this record, I think was one that really kind of caught people by surprise a little bit as like, oh, he just broke a record that many considered unbreakable or at the very least one of the most stout ultra marathon running world records. So I was really curious to see like, what did he do differently 
if anything, leading into this one in terms of how we structured it, because for one, pacing is going to be different. He's going to be running roughly 45 seconds per mile slower on average just to make up for that extra 12 hours of, of moving. So did he structure things differently because of that? What did he add? What did he subtract? And um, really, it was uh, a little more volume on his peak week. His peak week ended up being 175.66 miles. And he had a few more few more weeks that were above 150 miles. They went as follows from the ones I tracked leading into the race. He began with a 154 mile running week. He also included one ride and one swim, 156 mile training week with one swim, a 90.71 mile week with three rides and five swims, uh, then a 90.34 mile week with four rides and two swims. So that one kind of stack sticks out. He increased the cross training a fair bit. Um, five swims is the most I saw in any given um, training week four rides, I believe is the highest. So who knows, possibly he had a little bit of a setback after those first couple, you know, 150 plus mile weeks and needed to kind of lay off a little bit on the impact side of things and let his body catch up. But then he was right back to it for the most part, 150 mile week with three swims. Then he really hit his stride for this build by hitting 175 mile week with one ride, 172 mile week, uh, and then on a 128 mile week with two rides. Some of the kind of key observations that go within that volume is his priority sessions of those foundational runs were getting a lot more consistently in the mid sixes. So he was able to sort of kind of hit that average pace a little more consistency. He had less that were drifting up into like the high sixes, low seven minute range. Like, like I saw in some of his earlier foundational runs for that first world record. His longer long sessions were kind of 50 kilometers in duration. So he seemed to kind of discover that distance as kind of a solid one to maybe target for uh, some, some of his quality uh, key workouts for the week. Um, his fastest long session for this one, he came down a fair bit in pace relative to his first buildup. He did 150K at a 602 uh, minute per mile pace. It did look based on the commentary on Strava that that one was a felt like it was a pretty good push uh relative speaking to a lot of those other foundational runs so he may have uh pulled a little more training load for that one in order to get it in um the post 50 kilometer 602 minute mile there was more cross training less mileage and a bit slower on average with those quote with those those, those any quality sessions that he'd have so those were those 90 mile weeks so maybe that 50 kilometer just took a little more out of them than he expected uh, perhaps that answers that question a little bit that I had before. Uh, but then when he got right back to it, he had that 175 mile week, uh, looked to have a bit faster quality sessions, which included even some like moderate long runs of 17 miler at a 610 with some speed where he cut down into the mid to high five minute mile pace. So that was kind of what I saw as sort of his like maybe beginnings to speed work was he was just embedding some faster paced uh, moderate intensity stuff in the middle of some of those moderate long runs. And uh, that 172 mile week, there were more signs of speed work with that. With He had a 16 mile cut down where he cut to about a 540 per mile. Some interval sessions, he did some mile repeats, I believe an eight by one mile, which he was hitting around the low fives. That was another theme that kind of stood out when he gets into more kind of structured intervals later on the plan. He oftentimes is kind of hitting that mid to low five pace for a lot of those. 
So those kind of stood out a little bit in um, on the pacing charts there for that. And then um, he had a, that final 128 mile week before he tapered. There's a speed work session where it was kind of 17 miles floating between the low sixes and high fives. So he was, uh, you know, very much kind of looking at that, I assume, as kind of some overspeed work relative to his pacing strategy that he was going to be using for the 24-hour event itself. Uh, one thing that was interesting, and this sort of shows up, is he's got pretty high volume up to a week before the race. It looked like he only did about a one-week taper on this one, although... You know, it's sort of hard to say 120 mile week. Most people would consider that like very high volume relative to his two peak weeks of 175 and 172 miles. You know, it is a bit of a cut down in volume. We see that theme a little bit where his his tapers sort of get buried in the numbers to some degree because he's frequently running like 100 miles plus still that, you know, the weeks leading into the week of the race. And then obviously the week of the race, he goes well over a hundred miles because these distances are all long enough where even if it's just the race itself, it was going to base other than the the hundred K it's going to surpass that just by the race itself. But it seemed like from a percentage standpoint, he's tapering, but for most people's standards, not much of a taper, uh, you know, maybe that, that work will work a little better for lower intensity race, race pacing and things like that. Uh, but you know, seems to be working well for him. Also, a couple of things. It looks like the start to the framework he used going forward described on my podcast with him where, you know, he mentioned that once he was getting into kind of those buildups, he would do kind of a couple quality speed sessions per week. And he leaned pretty heavily on these kilometer repeats. And we do see those appear more frequently in his uh, following training buildups that we have. Uh, another interesting thing that kind of played out is when I think of, you know, people chasing records and world records and things like that, historically more so with the Olympic distances, I guess, but like people are typically like working up in distance versus coming down in distance. Now, granted, when we're talking about ultra marathon, everything is relatively long distance. So, you know, how much is going up to 24 hours and then coming back down to hundred miles or down to hundred K really like a drop down, uh, comparatively to like, say someone who's got a, five-year career as a marathoner and then decides to try to like revamp and target the 10k you don't see that very often uh not at a like a world-class level anyway so um that was something that was maybe a little bit interesting that his kind of approach after that first 24 hour world record is he kind of kept coming down to that 100k six hour event i did ask him about that and he said really like ultimately when he ran that first 24 hour and broke Giannis's record, he thought he could do better. And he thought the path forward, because he was going to do his next 24 hour about a year later, was add a couple of races in the interim and use them as a way to kind of build up to 24. So from that side of things, it makes sense that he went uh kind of um you know back down for a little bit before that second 24 hour he did. So his next quality race or target race was a hundred mile, 12 hour event that he did this one. Again, he increased his overall volume by a bit on some of his peak weeks. He also was a bit more consistent in terms of his, uh, his training weeks were basically all but one were above a hundred miles. And the one that wasn't the one that was in the nineties also included some testing this particular build. He started to kind of, I think, 
get a little more interested in different kind of tests to show like, you know, maybe where his potential's at, or maybe to build some of these future short interval sessions off of. So he did get a lactate test and then a uh, VO2 max test. So we'll talk about that a little bit in this particular build as well. All right. So for this one, his peak week was 186.9 miles. Uh, so outside of race weeks, that was his highest training week so far. And this is all leading into this second 100 mile, 12 hour world record. This one was, like I said, a bit more, um, a bit more consistent in terms of less down weeks outside of that one lower week when he was doing some lactate testing. Uh, but he had 146 mile week with one ride, 166 mile week, 150 mile week with two swims, 173 mile week with one swim, 171 mile week with one swim, the 92 and a half mile week with one ride, one swim and a lactate test. And then 149.7 mile week with a VO2 max test, 186 mile week with three swims and 187 uh, 0.6 mile week with three swims, then 116.7 mile week and 131.2 with two swims and 118 mile week with one ski and one swim. So, um, I, I do need to correct myself. His peak week there was 187.6. He had those two weeks that were kind of right with one another, the 186.9 and the 187.6. So with that came those tests. So let's take a look at those quickly. His lactate test showed that, um, they ramped him from kind of a five minute per kilometer pace all the way up to three minute per kilometer pace. And they tracked heart rate and then his lactate in millimoles per liter. So that five minute per kilometer was a, from a lactate per millimoles is 1.4, 440s 1.4 still, 420, 1.2, four flats 1.3, 350, 1.4, 340, 1.6, 330, 1.8, 320, 2.6. So he crossed over that two millimole mark there. 310 was 4.2. And then the three minute per kilometer produced a 7.3 millimoles per liter of lactate. Um, heart rates that go along with that basically ranged from 110 and progressively increased all the way up to 178. Um, perhaps some key points in there when he was in the mid 150s, you know, he's looking at like 340 to 330 minute per kilometer pace. He gets up to 162 once he pushes down to 320 minute per kilometer pace. So just some cool data to consider just where he was at with this particular one. Uh, the other interesting data point to share was that VO2 max test, which came back as a 74. So, um, you know, obviously VO2 max gives you some idea of just maybe how big his engine is. Doesn't necessarily include like something like his efficiency, like someone like Sorokin, you would imagine is incredibly efficient being able to run the numbers he has for the time he has, uh, without, you know, breaking down and wasting energy. There's just no way around it really. So like, I mean, that's still relatively high. It's not freakishly high. Like we see in some like professional skiers who, uh, have these massive VO twos in the high eighties, low nineties, but it's very much, you know, in a spot where it's, it, it makes, it makes sense that it would be where that is. Uh, and then when you also look at some of his speed work too, the other interesting thing that kind of showed up is almost all his speed work, very little, if anything ever dips below a five minute mile pace, he'll get a decent amount of volume kind of in that low, uh, 
or just slower than low five minute pace when he's doing some of those like 10 by one kilometer type efforts, but 10 by one kilometer is a high volume speed session, uh, for the most part. So you would imagine, uh, that, you know, he would be, uh, trying to be smart about his pacing within those, uh, but we didn't really see a whole lot faster than that, that I dug out anyway. Uh, maybe there wasn't some of those really shorter interval sessions that he does do, uh, a couple times during this, this entirety. Um, moving along with that one, some of the key observations going into this race. So now this race was the one where he broke the, you know, he became the first human to break 11 hours and hundred miles and he put up 110 miles in 12 hours. So this was, uh, you know, something that I think was much more reflective of his result when he ran 192 and a half miles for 24 hours. Uh, when he did that, uh, when I saw that race and I had already known about his, obviously about his 11, 14, 57, hundred mile, 105 mile, 12 hour. But when he put up that 192.5, I knew that if he goes back to the hundred mile distance and has a decent race, he's going under 11 hours. Uh, very little doubt in my mind that that was going to happen if things kept heading in the right direction. But some of the key observations that would maybe made this training block a little bit different than the previous one uh, was he started those foundational runs in the mid to high six minute mile pace. Uh, so we start seeing very few in the seven. He does these, he does two a days often. So that's another theme that shows up. A lot of times he's doing these big foundational runs and then occasionally a couple speed workouts. Uh, but he's always doing for the most part, like a bit of a shorter, like maybe 10 to 15 kilometer or like six to seven mile run in the afternoon, which is obviously slower. It's a recovery run than a lot of his foundational runs and his speed workouts. Uh, but one thing we do notice uh, throughout this is those end up actually speeding up too, where early on he was having more stuff in the high seven, low eights, and even a couple in like the low nine minute range. Whereas as we get into some of these um, increasingly impressive records, those are even coming down into the low sevens oftentimes. And, you know, at worst, maybe in the mid, just past mid seven minute per mile pace. Um, no structure speed work at the start that was uh, um, visible from what I could tell on his Strava outside of maybe some stuff that was embedded in a few moderate long runs, uh, pushing down into kind of the high fives and things like that. Week three began dropping pace a bit on those foundational runs. So rather than being in the mid to high sixes, he started kind of bringing that a bit lower again. That makes sense given that the race for this particular world record is hundred miles where he averaged right around a 630 minute per mile pace. So that theme kind of continues where when he's doing those foundational runs, he's oftentimes running at or a bit below that pace that he ends up running for the world record itself. Uh, the speed work appeared less structured than some of the later builds, but did include runs in the high teens mileage wise where he would drop well into the five minute per mile range a couple times per week. Uh, most foundational runs during this buildup were in the mid 20 mile range with an occasional 50 kilometer session. The sixth week on the list that I read off began uh, stretching out some of his runs where he would dip under that six minute per mile range. So now he's, he's kind of pushing the volume on those particular sessions a bit more. Uh, he had a few hillier routes and actually he went out, I believe this is the first time he went out to the high altitude training camp. Uh, beginning week six, but more aggressively in week seven, he started adding some things like some 300 meter hill repeats that I believe he was doing with the training team that was out there. Uh, his lowest mile week in this plan appeared to be just travel related. He was traveling back from that high altitude camp back to Lithuania. So he had a 116 mile week. 
he increased pace on foundational runs and added in a little more structured speed work. He had a fartlek session there where he did a run. He did like 20 reps of, um, you know, whatever the, the fartlek distance ended up being uh, for those particular runs. And those were peaking in kind of that low five minute per mile pace that I kind of referenced earlier. That 131 mile week had a lot of treadmill. And I think that was likely just because he returned home and it was winter. So uh, he was just found himself on the treadmill a lot more. So whether the structure for the speed work was just easier to gauge or made being on the treadmill for 131 miles in a week, a little more tolerable. He did look to have a little bit more of that structure, uh, per Strava, those intervals on the treadmill looked a lot like some kilometer repeats. Um, we start kind of seeing that framework that he described on the interview I did with him showing up more consistently going forward. Uh, for this particular week, he did, uh, two sessions of that. It was a five by one kilometer and then a 10 by one kilometer for both of those. He did reference getting a second VO2 max test. Uh, not entirely sure why, but he did say that there was likely, a, it scored lower than his first one. And they think it was like a reading error on it. Um, you know, it's, it's tough. I think his first VO2 max done was done in a different lab too. So it gets a little goofy when you're, when you're looking at it from different different uh labs and different tests and things like that so um chances are that first one of 74 is pretty indicative of where he was at you're not going to move that number tremendously uh from where he's at anyway uh to begin with um moving along though the couple of points 118 mile week he had some additional speed work outside of kilometer repeats one was a short interval and a longer interval session he had like a four by five thousand workout which would have been like uh, what I would probably consider like really long intervals, kind of at a tempo session, and then some shorter 250 meter repeats. Uh, and you know, that's, that's led him into his taper. And kind of, like I said before, his tapers tend to be quite, uh, voluminous still, despite it being relatively low. Uh, you know, you think about it, a lot of his tapers, taper weeks are still just past a hundred miles, but you know, if you're peaking at 180 plus miles per week, that's a pretty big percentage drop. So, um, it, and, and the proof's in the pudding, so to speak, with, with his times that he's running at these races. So there is that as well. Um, all right. So next world record was his 100 kilometer and six hour world records. So this one, I think, is actually one that stands out quite a bit for some of the stuff I mentioned before. One is he's been coming down in distance now from racing. You look at just like the speed work he's done to date and kind of where he's pushed that and the pace he ends up running for this. So this hundred kilometer world record, he averaged a 552 per mile pace for the entirety of that. He ended up getting, I think it was like 98.8 uh, kilometers for the six hour world record. You know, so it was, um, you know, that one kind of surprised me a bit. I wouldn't have expected him to be able to quite push that low, but again, he's been surprising us all throughout. So it's not that that may be the norm at this point, uh, for this one, you know, just like the trend I suggested, he's kind of continuing to build upon what he was doing prior. So this peak week for this one was a, a 192.9 mile week. And the lead in that I dug into included 177 mile week with one swim 149 mile week with two swims, 163 mile week with one swim, 156 mile week with one swim, 174 mile week, 131 mile week, 192 mile week, and 147 mile week 
with a peak long run of 50 kilometers. So this one was the one that kind of began a trend that I saw with his 24 hour world record most recently, which was just like, there's really no deload weeks in here. Like from what I can tell, like even the, his lower mile weeks in this buildup are still a, and I guess he had that 131 mile week, but for the most part, they're like the, the 150 range. And then a couple where it pops up, obviously the 192 sticks out a bit, but 177, these are all like high volume weeks. And uh, due to the nature of the pace he's going to need to tolerate for a hundred kilometers being faster, like the training load just by design is likely going to push a little more, at least moderate intensity work. And as you'll see, even some probably higher intensity work uh, comparative to what he's doing before. So the fact that he's able to actually increase his volume and consistently keep it up without any really big deload weeks in there uh, is, is, is likely what put him in a position since he made it through injury free and without overly fatiguing himself uh, to be able to do what he did. So some key observations within that training week is, he starts getting more structured with those one kilometer repeats and it starts them at the beginning. Uh, he did some tempo and hill repeats added more consistently mid to low sixes for foundational runs. So like, you know, like, like I alluded to before, you know, he starts pushing those foundational runs closer to like the intensity. I believe he's likely trying to target for the race itself. So it makes sense for this one that those are going to come down in pace uh, but again, he was still able to hit some 50 K long runs. So like he was able to keep some of that overall volume in there on those runs as well. Uh, more, uh, sub six minute per mile paces, it, they increase in some of those foundational runs throughout the build. So he's dipping down under six minute, even, even though his average pace for a lot of those are still in the six minute range. Um, he's dipping under, so he is touching that average pace that he could ultimately do. The other thing to consider too, is like, he's not running on a track when he's doing these training weeks. And sometimes these training routes are not ideal. They're not the fastest route one could build. And when you think of his hundred K world record that was done at the century and invite as well. Uh, so he did hundred kilometers on a track that track there. So it's possible that despite his pacing looking a bit slower than goal race pace in a lot of those foundational runs on average effort wise, they may have been right up in there. Uh, so a few other things, some short intervals early in the plan as short as 200 meters, but up to a thousand meters. So those kilometer repeats that start becoming kind of one of the foundational speed work sessions that he'll use. He did some ladder workouts with short intervals where he would, he would, uh, you know, cut down, uh, each interval shorter, and then usually do like two or three reps of them. He also had some longer tempo sessions of upwards to 10 kilometer. Uh, you know, some of those 10 kilometer repeats that he was doing were right around a 35 minute time. Uh, and some of the long intervals around three kilometer distance. So he had a lot more variety in this buildup in his speed work. It seemed like he was documenting it in a more structured way. And then also including a lot more variety, whereas kind of some of those early ones almost felt like when his legs felt good, he'd give it a little more gas. And then when they, when they, they didn't, he just kind of kept it at foundation or, or recovery. Uh, he had a lot more track sessions for this one. That 192 mile week began targeting more high five, low six pace, longer sessions. So he was really, I think, leaning into the race specificity at that point. He had what I would appear to be maybe one of the only failed workouts of his buildup so far, where he bailed out on a single workout, 
Um, that was after that 192 mile week. So perhaps he felt that training a little bit, but it also may have realized that the fitness was where it needed to be. And he was starting to kind of, uh, lean a little bit into the risk reward, uh, side of risk side of that a bit. And maybe he just backed out because he didn't need to take on additional fatigue at that point. Uh, Second run begins to normalize in the mid sevens. So like I kind of said before, he's, as we go through these, he starts to, you see those trends happening too, where even these afternoon, like 10 to 15 kilometer runs that he'll do start consistently getting to be more kind of in the mid to low seven minute range. His taper was relative to peak volume, still hitting over hundred miles per week. Like I mentioned in some of those other ones. Uh, so they, they look like no taper in reality. Technically it's a taper, uh, so yeah, that 100K, 605, 552 per mile. Appeared that it was understood the high volume would need some intervals to normalize this pace. So just the idea that this was maybe the first race he did where race goal race pace was going to be relatively fast compared to the majority of his miles. Because with his 100 mile and his 24 hour, you know, almost all his runs for the most sort of huge portion of his volume is at or faster than goal race pace. But this was maybe the one that was like, going to be at least like noticeably faster in most cases. So I think he understood that the high volume that he was going to do is going to need to have like some broken interval, whether they be really long ones, like those 10 kilometer sessions uh, or the three kilometer sessions, he was going to need to kind of break those up a little bit and, and be touching that 552 ish intensity or below in order to normalize that a bit. Um. One other thing is the relative high amount of training that matched this intensity in longer sessions at times of 20, 25 plus miles. So he also embedded them into some of those longer runs too, which, which makes sense again, for those reasons I mentioned. Uh, and that's what resulted in that world record. So that brings us to the final one, this most recent hundred or 24 hour world record where he ran 198.6 miles. And this one was the week that really kind of blew my mind. Uh, the other weeks, I think, were difficult to wrap my head around, but it was like, yeah, I've seen things done like that before. Uh, this one is one where I'm a little more, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll be curious to see how he bounces back from this. And if he tries to reproduce this, how long he'll be able to kind of keep doing that. Because uh, there's just not that many examples of people doing builds where they're you know, averaging over 200 miles per week with quality sessions. I tried it once when I was preparing for desert solstice 24 hour in 2020. I had, I think, I think I had seven weeks where I averaged over 200 miles per week, but I had nowhere near the quality. Um, and obviously this is comparing two different people. So just because it didn't work for me, doesn't mean it's not going to, obviously it worked for him, but, uh, I'm curious as to like the relative sustainability of that type of a, aggressive build. I actually talked to Harvey Lewis about this um, a couple of years ago. And, and, you know, he's been in the 24 hour world for quite some time. So he's seen a lot of guys come in and out, put up performances, remain in that kind of area for a long-term time versus kind of coming and going. And he said like everyone he knows that pushed that kind of volume usually ends up having some sort of setback because of it. And his advice to me was basically like, you know, don't bother. So, um, who knows? We'll see. I think we're still learning a lot about this sport and the definition of what is the best path forward is probably yet to be determined. Um, but this buildup included, 
a progressive, a much more progressive build than the other ones. The other ones had some signs of like a step back here or there where it was like, okay, I'm bringing the volume down a little bit in order to maybe recoup my energies to kind of make that next push, which is what I see a lot of times in endurance plans. The ones I do, the ones I program oftentimes have what I call like a deload week every like fourth week or so, so that we kind of let everything kind of catch up, minimize injury risk. This eight week build was just basically progressive across the board too, not just with volume, but as he added more, like more quality too. Uh, it just seemed to all increase gradually over that eight weeks. So this is how that one played out. Uh, 169 miles with two rides, three swims, 158 miles with two rides, one swim, 183.9 miles, 198 miles, 205 miles, 223 miles, 234 miles. Uh, the one thing that was kind of interesting here is I mentioned this earlier on, but it really looks like with this build, he tried to keep his volume even though it was progressive from a running standpoint, he tried to keep some of the, the volume up a little bit higher overall with some cross training early on. Perhaps that was just uh, getting his body ready to be able to kind of tolerate the impact of running those 180 plus 190 plus and ultimately 200 plus mile weeks near the end. Uh, it may have just been like, all right, I want the volume there, but I don't want the impact in those early weeks. So those first three weeks included a bit of cross training. And then those last ones, it was just like, I'm all in with the running stuff. And, you know, ultimately there's only so much time in the day and then you're putting in a 234 mile week, you know, there may just be where that, where that kind of, uh, you start eliminating things that are unnecessary in your mind. Uh, some key observations for the lead in for this one His, like I said, cross training higher in the beginning. Uh, speed work focused more on those one kilometer repeats versus the variety we saw in that hundred kilometer buildup. There was some non one kilometer workouts. They tended to be things like two kilometer repeats. He had a session where he did one minute on one minute off where it was like a short interval, high intensity session. And then he had a three by 10 K in there. Uh, some faster long sessions. This is where he was like, I think more consistently dipping down to the low sixes at times. And some of those those fat, those, those foundational long runs. Uh, and like I said, in the last one, those evening runs, those recovery runs have become to drop as well. Or now a lot of those are in the low sevens at times. First time outside of the 50 mile during that first 24 hour world record that those long runs started to move beyond 50 kilometers, uh, in any consistency. So, the really interesting thing about that is not only was he able to add volume to those longer foundational se sessions, but he maintained that mid to low sixes, uh, oftentimes with two speed sessions in there during the week, during that 223 mile week, he still included two speed sessions. One of them was a 10 by one kilometer staple, uh, session that we see. And that he talked about on the podcast I did with him, he had some other uphill, moderate intensity stuff. So it'd be interesting to see like what drove the uphill I would imagine that was just to reduce impact. If you are training for a race like 24 hours, where like even when you get world record pace of 715 minute per mile, like uh Sorokin was able to do, um, you know, it's uh it, it, it's still really slow compared to what he can do. So when we're talking about speed work, he doesn't need the leg turnover the way he would if he was training for like a 5k or a 10k and he's just going to be running much faster on race day than he is the majority of his training. So you can get a lot of the benefits of speed work by doing uh, uh, an uphill versus a flat or a downhill and really, really reduce that injury risk since leg turnover isn't probably something he's overly concerned about for this particular event. Finally, that 234 mile week, 
two speed sessions. He did a 10 by two kilometer and a 10 by one kilometer. His long runs, um, in this one were this was, this one was just crazy. His long runs, he had a 43 and a half mile long run at 627 per mile pace, uh, you know, oftentimes dipping down into the low sixes for parts of that. He had a 31 mile long run at 625, a 31 mile long run at 618, and then a 31 mile long run at 617 uh, per mile pace. So the other interesting thing about that is not only was this particular build progressive in nature where he, he got more difficult as the weeks went on, when you look at these weeks too, he, um, he was often running faster in some of those foundational runs at the end versus the beginning. So he was ratcheting it down a bit. And then, you know, that's sometimes like a bit of a, a topic to of debate within ultra running is like, do you structure like say, now this goes into multi-weeks, but do you structure like a multi-week build where it's more aggressive on week one and it kind of tapers off as your body gets more tired or do you ease into it and progressively add more? It seems like Sorokin for the most part is in the mindset of progression in terms of how much volume and intensity he adds to his training over the course of the weeks leading into the race itself. Um, the race, there's some interesting stuff about this race particularly. And we talked about this a bit on the podcast, all his other world records so far were very, very, what I would say, well-paced. He had like basically slight positive splits in all of them where uh, the the positive nature of his splits were so small that it's hard to imagine that they really impacted him negatively on his finishing time. So I thought they were very well executed. This race, now granted, he ran 198.6 miles. It was a world record. You know, he added over 10 kilometers to his previous world record. Uh, or actually just under 10 kilometers uh, to his previous world record. And, you know, so it's really hard to say like, oh, well, I mean, your strategy was poor. It's <laughs> it's really hard to say that. Although I think one thing I did ask him about and he did confirm was he was maybe a little too aggressive early on and it probably costed him some overall distance. Like does, if he paces a little bit better, he probably quite easily, even on this course, which we'll talk about a little bit, he goes past 200 miles and, when I looked at the actual splits for the race itself, his first mile was his first mile. That was above a 6:30 pace, 6:30 per mile was mile 27. So he did the entire first marathon under 6:30 pace. Um, there was a few like, you know, well under 6:30 pace as well. The next was, wasn't till mile 40. So he, he, he had his second mile that was North of 6:30 per mile at mile 40. So he had, he was running sub six thirty minute average for the first 40 miles of this. So, you know, given where his end number ended up being that first fifth of the race was done at on average, about 45 seconds per mile faster than his average pace. So what this tells me essentially is it's too big of a positive split to assume that he maximized his potential in this race. You can get into the weeds with this topic and think like, Oh, you know, the mental aspect of ultra running is so big, you know, it depends on the person. Some people may need to go out too fast in order to like really wrap their head around it. I highly doubt that. I think those people who maybe argue that are people who've never actually like experienced a negative or an even split race or even a slight positive split race to really know like how that actually feels. Uh, and I mean, he more or less confirmed it. And then he also has done it the other way multiple times before. So he's got good personal experience to relate to like what kind of feels optimal, which doesn't when it comes to like closing out these final portions of this race. Uh, but let's look at some of those splits where they're kind of like, where, how it could play out. 
how, how it kind of played out. Cause he did just kind of gradually progressively get slower. Uh, so it wasn't like he just was churning out six thirties and all of a sudden, boom, he's running eights the rest of the way or something like that. It was a pretty gradual progression. Um, mile 89 was the first time he ran uh, a mile that was seven that wasn't in the sixes. So his first seven minute plus mile was mile 89. His first eight minute mile was at mile 155. His first and only nine minute mile was mile 167. So as I said, essentially he gradually slowed over the full 198.6 miles to get to that number. When I talked to him in the podcast, we talked about a few things um, relative to that. One was uh, how would you do it differently? Why did you do it the way you did? And his message was basically the course wasn't fast. There was 380 degree turns. I looked at the profile on it. There looked like there was at least one like real 180 degree turn where like you're completely turning around on a pin. There was two other ones that looked like they were, there were 180 degree turns. They may have a little bit of a wider sweep to them, but still not ideal. Uh, if you're looking at it compared to like a flat track also, um, 300 people, I mean, it wasn't a 400 meter loop, so it wasn't as crowded as that. It was, uh, it's just a good question. I don't know how long the loop actually was. It was partly on a track, but then they would deviate out of what I presume was a stadium and do some loops with those 180 degree turns and stuff. Uh, so not a fast track, a lot of people there that he would have to weave around. And he, he said that like some of the faster miles was just to kind of separate himself from that pack of people. So he wasn't running around them as much. Uh, I can see that to a degree as being a strategy, but I also think like when you have 300 people on a very short loop, you get out ahead of them, you're going as fast as he is. You're just going to catch back up with them anyway, sooner rather than later. So I think like the strategy there is still probably to like at least back off a little bit. Uh, and I think he knows that. I think we're going to see a higher number from him because of that when, when he kind of course corrects. Uh, some thoughts about it, although those first three world records appear to have deload weeks built into them, as I mentioned, whereas the final world record was progressive training load increased each week. So that kind of stood out to me. Uh, you know, there another topic that I've been getting a lot of questions about after the interview and just in general, and this isn't a topic that is unique to Sorokin. This is just a topic that is basically omnipresent when it comes to world records and things of that nature and personal bests, uh, is the super shoe conversation is like, you know, we have new shoe technology that has essentially been available to some people as early as 2016. Now, most major shoe brands have a version of it. So what does this mean? Um, well, it appears that Sorokin has used the latest available Nike super shoe in all his world records for the exception of the first 100 mile 12 hour, where it appeared he changed into them partway through. Um, someone can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I'm almost positive that he changed into them partway through. So you could say like he had them for some of it, but not all of it for that one. The other three, he was wearing the latest version of the Nike super shoe. Uh, what does that mean? Well, we know that the super shoes work, meaning that relative to what someone would be wearing in an event like this. So if we want to use the, the most logical comparison, the shoe that Giannis was wearing um, is going to produce less efficiency. So we know they work compared to that. But the question always still remains is how much and you have to ask that question from one brand to the next, as well as from the individual to the next. So the nice thing about uh, if we want to look at just Sorokin's efforts, since he was using, you know, Nike super shoe, uh, we can kind of be a little more consistent with what maybe he got from it from one race to the next. 
Nike's version has, since they were kind of the first to market with this technology, their versions have routinely tested better than their competitors' products, despite that gap has closed in a lot of cases with a few models. Um, we can assume that on average, about a 4% uh, 4% improvement is what we're going to get with a super shoe that, that Sorokin was wearing. So if we just run the numbers on that, you know, we're looking at approximately eight miles for something like what he did for the 24 hours, which would still put him ahead of Giannis's previous world record. And I would say he objectively had a harder course. Uh, Giannis's previous world record, which is now sitting third on the list, um, it was on a track. It had no 180 degree turns. It certainly didn't have 300 people out there. Uh, so, you know, I think like when you look at it, like even if we don't consider the relative environment difficulty, you know, he's still likely producing a faster time than that, even with the the shoe advantage. So whether you want to put asterisks by world records done in super shoes or not, you know, who knows? And we're also talking, who knows what he's going to do yet. We we could easily see him put up, you know, another 10 miles or so to that, that, that 198.6 number he recently did. Uh, the other interesting thing, looking at the GPX file of the race, and this is just kind of a funny side note. The GPX appeared as if it was going slightly downhill the whole way. If you just look at like the course profile, he's out there for so long, it's 24 hours. The air pressure changes enough over a 24 hour period where like the GPX, the way it reads like elevation gain and loss is going to change with that. So, um, even though I'm sure the course was like basically flat it certainly it was a loop so it couldn't have been consistently downhill when you actually look at the chart it looks like he was on this super gradual downhill the whole way which i just found kind of funny and and thought it was fun to talk about but or mention um but yeah that's what i got that was kind of my my deep dive into some of the stuff uh questions that came in some of them maybe follow-up questions that may have been fun to dive in with sorokin with a little more detail if there hadn't been you know, a little bit of a language barrier there or some things that I'd maybe like to talk to him about, because ultimately this is just me combing through his Strava. So uh, I'm sure he could clarify or correct me on some things uh, that uh, that we talked about here. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt that, but uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. My little deeper analysis and some of like the trajectory that has been Alexander Sorokin's world record performances over the last couple of years. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, 
or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 